Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our Easter Sunday service. It's so good to have you with us. Please would you turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 50 to 54. And you can put your finger in there because we're going to read it just now. About 12 years ago, Gail and I visited Yad Lashirion, which is the Israeli Armored Corps memorial site and museum at a place called Latrun, which is between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. The Israelis made this museum and memorial site because they wanted to make sure that every single soldier in the Armored Corps who had died would be remembered, that none would be forgotten. The memorial and museum are housed in an old fort, which is very atmospheric because it's pockmarked with, um, with damage from shell fire and machine gun fire. And just outside the fort, there's a long wall, and on it is, is inscribed the name of every single fallen soldier from every single war ever fought defending modern Israel. And then inside the fort, visitors can use computers to access a photograph or information on every soldier uh, relating to them and to their death. The keep of the fortress has been converted into what they call a Tower of Tears by an Israeli artist called Danny Caravan. The way that they've done this is that on the inside of the tower they've lined it with metal plating from Israeli tanks. And then there's a pool at the bottom of the tower and water circulates from the pool up to the top of the tower and then it dribbles down uh, across the face of the steel, leaving rust stains on it. And those rust stains look very much like blood stains. And then there is also a constant dripping, which is sort of like an endless trickle of tears for the dead. So why would I tell you about this? Um, it's because memorials are important and subsequent generations live and die and it's far too easy for each one of them to forget how much they owe to the sacrifices of previous generations. And so memorials serve as testimonies to the meaning and the result of what has happened in the past. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to consider three testimony, testimonies to Jesus' death on the cross. Testimony from the temple, testimony from the dead, and then from Gentiles. So let's read from today's passage, Matthew 27, verses 50 to 54. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised who died, I beg your pardon, were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with them who were guiding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. So let's begin with the testimony from the temple. In Old Testament times, it was a very dangerous thing to come into the presence of a king. You wouldn't come uninvited, 
and you had to follow a very special procedure in order to come into the king's presence. Take a look at this extract from the book of Esther. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. Now it used to be the same with our God. God's earthly throne was his temple at Jerusalem. People entering the temple would leave Gentiles behind in the court of Gentiles. And then they would leave woman behind in the court of woman. And then only Jewish men could enter the court of Israel. But only the priests could enter the priest's court. And yet there were still two more steps before you could come into the presence of God. His throne, which was between the wings of the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. What were those two places? Well, first, there was the holy place. And only the duty priest could enter the holy place. The priests offering sacrifices in the priest's court, they followed a roster. And then the priest chosen to minister in the holy place was chosen by lot from the on-duty priests. So it was a very rare experience to enter the priest's court. And it was extremely rare. And in fact, many priests didn't even get a chance to get in there in an entire lifetime. But there was one thing for sure. Remember, that was the holy place. What about the most holy place? Well, only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And he could do it only once a year on the Day of Atonement. One man, once a year. But this wasn't all. Just take a look at the ritual that he had to follow. And I'm quoting directly from the NIV Study Bible, which is based on Leviticus 16. First of all, the high priest went to the basin in the courtyard and he removed his regular garments. He washed himself and then he went into the holy place to put on special garments for the Day of Atonement. Those garments were only used once a year and they stayed in the holy place. Then he went back out to the priest's court to sacrifice a bull at the altar of burnt offering. And that was as a sin offering for himself and for the other priests. He wouldn't be able to enter the most holy place unless he'd done that sacrifice. Then he went into the most holy place, but he still had to be very careful. So he took with him incense, and then he also took coals from the altar of the burnt offering. And the, the, the purpose of those things was that he would pour the incense onto the coals and produce a big cloud so that the Ark of the Covenant would be obscured. He wasn't even allowed to look at the Ark of the Covenant, which was God's throne. And then he sprinkled some of the bull's blood on and in front of the cover of the Ark. Then he went outside and at the altar of the burnt offering, he killed a goat as a sin offering for the people. And then for a second time, he went in to the most holy place. And this time he sprinkled the goat's blood in front of the Ark of the Covenant as an atonement for the people's sins. Then he returned out to the holy place and he sprinkled the goat's blood there. Then he went outside to the altar of burnt offering and sprinkled it with the blood of the bull. 
for himself and the blood of the goat for the people. Then the high priest entered the holy place to remove his special garments. He went out to the basin to wash and then he put on his regular priestly clothes. And as a final sacrifice, he went out to the great altar and offered a ram as a burnt offering for himself and another ram for the people. What, what an incredibly complex, difficult procedure to enter into the presence of God once a year. And only one man could do it. It sort of reminds me of the ritual that I have to go through because of COVID-19. Gail and Matthew are in complete shutdown because they have underlying health issues. And I'm the only one who can enter into their, pers into their presence during lockdown. But I can only do it, folks, if I'm clean. If I leave the property, I, can, I have to follow this elaborate cleansing ritual when I come back in order to make sure that the virus doesn't touch them. Let me tell you about it. So I arrive in my car. I get out of it, I lock the car, I sanitize my hands, and I sanitize the car keys and I throw them into the kitchen. Then I go around the house to the veranda where I take off my outside clothes and those are not touched for 24 hours because hopefully the virus will have died after that. Then I dive into the swimming pool and I play around for 10 or 15 minutes hoping that the virus gets killed. Then I go into the house, um, use a towel before I go into the house. Let me get, it, get the order straight. I use a towel, dry myself, leave that towel outside. Then I walk into the house, but I still have to wash my hands with soap and put on my inside clothes before I am acceptable enough to come into the presence of my wife. So both of these rituals, they have to do with cleansing. I can't come into my wife's presence stained with the coronavirus and the high priest can't come into God's presence stained by sin. He needs to be cleansed of his sin. And the fact that an animal had to die in the high priest's place pointed to the fact that there must be punishment for sin and that the punishment for sin is death. Something had to die in the place of the high priest and the people. And the fact that the sacrifices had to be made over and over again, year after year, decade after decade, in fact, century after century, means that they weren't a, sacri uh, a satisfactory means to enable a man to come before the throne of God. So why would I have told you all this? Let's go back to the testimony from the temple. Verse 50 says, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Then notice it, notice it says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So there was this curtain separating the holy place and the most holy place. And it was a substantial curtain. It was 18 meters high. It was 9 meters wide. And it was probably about this thick. It was no sort of flimsy mosquito net or, or sort of veil or gauze. And Matthew tells us that the moment Jesus gave up his spirit, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now maybe someone's asking, well, how do we know this if only the priests were allowed to enter the holy place? 
Well, if you look at Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says that after Jesus' death and resurrection, I'll quote directly, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So they would have told the Christian community about the tearing of the curtain. Notice now that the, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Why did Matthew include that detail? Well, it shows us that the curtain had been torn by God. But what was the meaning of that act of God? I believe that God was telling us two things. First of all, that the system of animal sacrifice was over. Why? Because Jesus' death was the ultimate sacrifice that every animal sacrifice had been pointing towards through all the decades. And on the basis of animal sacrifice, only one man could come before God once a year. And animal sacrifice was even unable to put that man right with God. So it had to be repeated over and over, as I said earlier. The sacrifice of Jesus, on the other hand, happened once for all. It doesn't need to be repeated. And it is only that sacrifice that satisfies God's justice. It's only that sacrifice that puts a person in right standing with God. And this builds a bridge into the next thing that God is telling us. So the first thing, he was telling us that the system of animal sacrifice was over. The second thing is that on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, listen to this, any person can come into the presence of God in any place and at any time. We are no longer contaminated by sin if we are in Christ because the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. We have permanent access to God. You can stand before the throne of God today, no matter what has happened in the past, without guilt, without shame, or without fear of punishment. Your personal relationship has been restored. You were an enemy, but now you're a friend. You were an estranged rebel, but now you are a beloved child of God. And this is the most excellent news. So, we've covered the testimony from the temple. Now let's have a look at the testimony from the dead. Verse 52. Uh, actually, we'll take it from the middle of verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Just a little aside here, if you're a seeker. If you were Matthew, and you wanted your readers to believe your account, why would you include this bizarre detail? Why would you open yourself up to critics by openly claiming this in writing? We can only conclude that he wrote it because it happened. And any skeptic could go and verify his claim by speaking to some of the many eyewitnesses that he refers to in this passage. Three things to note. First of all, the tombs were opened by the earthquake that shook Jerusalem when Jesus died. A skeptic could claim that, ah, oh, well, maybe God 
wasn't a part of that earthquake. But the raising of the dead linked the earthquake, linked to the earthquake showed that it was something that had been initiated by God. Number two, that term fallen asleep, the people who woke up had fallen asleep. It's used repeatedly in the New Testament to refer to people who died, but whose eternal um, security and destiny was sure. Thirdly, these people, and this is very significant, they came out of the open tombs only after the resurrection of Jesus. So what's the meaning of that? This was sort of like a mini-resurrection anticipating the final resurrection that will happen when Jesus Christ returns. It's also a sign. It came after Christ's resurrection, so it shows that we too will be raised just as Christ was raised. And the resurrection of Christ proved that he was without sin, and therefore it proved that he was an acceptable sacrifice and substitute for you. This is how Paul puts it. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 6. What I received I passed on to you, notice the emphasis here, as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He repeats that. And that he appeared to Cephas, in other words Peter, that was Peter's uh, Greek name, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Notice that he's putting empirical evidence in here. He's putting evidence that there were eyewitnesses, more than 500 of them. And some of them, if not all of them, are still living. Then, a little later on in the chapter, this whole chapter, incidentally, is about the resurrection. Uh, he writes, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through one man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power and he goes on to talk about how the fact the fact that death will be destroyed as well and so this is why jesus said in john chapter 11 25 i am the resurrection and the life the one who believes in me will live even though they die these testimonies from the temple and from the dead are just mind-blowingly magnificent. What they're saying is that the instant you place your hope in Christ, you are placed in right standing with God and you actually begin from that point onwards living continuously in His presence. Just take a look at this passage from Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 7. Because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now listen to this. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, 
in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Did you get that? God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in heavenly places. This has already happened. Somehow, although your body is here on earth, although I'm standing here in the sun with my bald head getting a little bit burnt, <laughs> the eternal part of me is seated in heaven with God. And one day, when I die, or when Christ returns, whichever comes first, the process of transferring myself to heaven will be complete. And it'll be the same for you, because you will be given a resurrection body, and your entire being will live with God forever. And yet there is still a reality that you are seated with God in heavenly places. Oh, I just love these two testimonies, because they change everything. Just imagine looking now at this coronavirus epidemic through the lens of that reality. I am seated with Christ in heavenly places. It changes everything. But let's have a look now at the last testimony, and it's a testimony from Gentiles. Verse 54. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Jesus had guards because the authorities were concerned that there would be an uprising and that his followers would take him down from the cross before he could be executed. This leader, um, he was the leader of the guards and he was a centurion. He was an officer in the Roman army and he'd probably been in charge right from the beginning up until the present. So right from the trial up until the crucifixion. And even if he hadn't been, even if he'd only been there for the crucifixion, he would have heard that one of the reasons why Jesus was dying was because he claimed to be the Son of God. For example, just before, in Matthew 27, verses 41 to 43, this is what Matthew writes. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked Jesus. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Well, let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Yet what did the centurion and the soldiers end up believing with, with certainty? They said, surely he was the Son of God. Not just he was the Son of God, surely he was the Son of God. This is astounding. These men were hardened soldiers. Torture and execution was all in a day's work for them. Just a couple of hours before, they'd been, they were callously gambling for Jesus' clothes. And yet Jesus' passing laid them bare and vulnerable before God. Surely this man was the Son of God. I wonder why Matthew included this detail. Well, I believe he was making a point that soon people from all nations, not just Jewish people, would come to believe in Jesus. And the starting point of this process was the crucifixion and the resurrection. In fact, the last words of Jesus that Matthew records just a little bit further on at the end of his gospel, they go like this. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In conclusion today, we remember the cross because memorials are important. It's far too easy to forget how much we owe to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And memorials serve as testimonies to the meaning and the result of something that has happened in the past. And so today we've looked at the testimony from the temple and from the dead. And they remind us that we have two things. I'm going to spend a moment on it. A living reality and a living hope. Let's take the first one, our living reality. Because we are in Christ Jesus, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Those words come from Hebrews 4 verse 16. This is such a comfort as we face the uncertainties of a world thrown into chaos by coronavirus. We can come with confidence. Why would we do it? so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Folks, if you're in a time of need at the moment, you can enter at any time God's throne room and receive from Him the grace and the help that you need. And I wouldn't be surprised, folks, if things are going to get tougher, but that's okay because we have this present reality. We have this living reality that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. What is grace? Just think of it for a moment. I often like to say, I can't remember um, where I read this, but grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. This is what we can receive from God in our hour of need and at this time of need. But not only do you have a living hope, uh, sorry, not only do you have a living reality, I beg your pardon, you also have a living hope that since Jesus was raised from the dead, you will also be raised from the dead. So if you are afraid, and I think many people are afraid at the moment, that maybe a loved one um, who's in the Lord will die, or maybe that you yourself will die, remind yourself, of the words that Jesus said. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Wonderful, wonderful testimonies. But don't forget the testimony from the Roman centurion. He reminds us that there is a job to be done. There is a message to be passed on. And it's a message of overwhelmingly good news that we need to be passing on to people around us. We need to be telling them that the best is yet to be. And it's true because Jesus died, but not only did he die in our place, he was also raised so that we can be raised to eternal life and be seated with him in heavenly places. May God bless you, and I trust you'll have a wonderful Easter. Thank you so much. Goodbye.